Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Father, once again, we are grateful for the opportunity to come before you uh, in a time of, of special instruction during our Sunday school. We're thankful for the, uh, the subject of canonicity, of how we know the books of the Bible are truly the books of the Bible. We're thankful for the men who went before us, who uh, explained these things to us, who were the ones that you used and guided to, to form the canon. We're thankful that you gave us uh, this canon, that we uh, has been clearly uh, n- necessity to add to the Old Testament to explain uh, the new revelation brought by Jesus Christ that with that in mind it was a necessity that we have our, our, our Bible or our canon expanded to include the New Testament. So we're thankful that you made that clear to us and clear to your church and that we do have in our hands the, the true Bible, the true words, the gospel of Jesus Christ explained to us in many forms, whether it's through the, the gospels, uh, the history of Acts, or whether it's the epistles, or whether it's the uh, apocalyptic literature of Revelation. We have a complete uh, explanation uh, of the revelation that was brought through Jesus Christ, the implementation of the new covenant, and the great blessings that, that come to your people from it. So we, we pray you'd help us through this class. If one thing is accomplished, that would have a great appreciation for the men who went before us, guided by you, who uh, understood this necessity and, and helped uh, form this canon for us, Father, through your leadership and your guidance through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're currently, you may have forgot, but we're actually going through the London Baptist Confession. Uh, but we kind of jumped off at the subject of canonicity to spend more time looking at it. And I noticed some new people here today, so we'll just kind of explain a little bit what we're doing. Uh, the idea of canonicity is, is how we got the books of the Bible, how we know that they are what we would call the Bible. Uh, the, the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. We spent some time in the Old Testament, but most of our, our time is being spent all looking at the New Testament and how we got the books that we have and how other books were excluded. And <clears throat> looking at the debates about this subject, there are two uh, basic models that we're looking at. The first is what's called the intrinsic model, and this holds the idea that the canon was forcefully and unnaturally imposed upon an unwilling church, that the written New Testament canon was not seen as a necessity by the new church, but was something that was imposed upon it uh, by a, a group of men uh, who came along that wanted to bring it under its control, um, and that whatever was added to it was a distortion of true Christianity. If you uh, look at Islam, uh, they believe that the New Testament canon was taken and was corrupted so that we really can't trust what it says. It's not the true nature of Christianity. And even secular scholars believe the same thing, that the new infant church was this uh, sort of uh, uh, spirit-led free church that accepted everybody, no rules, uh, just if you love Jesus, you're, you're welcome. Kind of like the, the 70s hippie movement, uh, Jesus movement. And uh, then these group of men came along that wanted to dominate it, wanted to control it. So they uh, got a group of documents and shaped them and wrote them in a way that would lead the church in their direction and then got the church to accept those documents. And the main point is that the church would have never accepted a new canon had it not been for this. They were happy with the Old Testament and the leading of the Spirit and would have continued to this day if it wasn't for those men interceding. And the intrinsic model, the one that we hold to, teaches that the New Testament would have been a natural for the early church. It would have been something in their DNA to collect these new documents that contained this 
new revelation explaining uh, the revelation and the gospel brought about by Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the difference, basically the difference between these two views. What evidence does this intrinsic model put forth uh, to combat the intrinsic model? And what evidence is there that the intrinsic model really is the true model that the church, at their in, in, even in her infancy, would have longed for, would have desired, would have seen it as necessary, collecting these new documents about Jesus Christ and then adding them to the canon. And... Uh, We've looked at a couple things so far. We've looked at the various arguments that got put forth by the proponents, uh, one being that uh, the early church was an oral illiterate culture. They, most of the people didn't read. They say that the illiteracy rate was 90%, and therefore they would have been very suspicious of people coming and saying, oh, you need to follow this written text. You need to accept this written text. And we saw in a couple lessons that being oral or being illiterate doesn't mean that you're against text. And a perfect example of that was the fact that the early church accepted what as inspired. The Old Testament. They had a, a collection of, of 39 books that they saw as giving them direction and information, revelation about God's will to them. So having accepted, already accepted a large number of books, they would have had no problem accepting another set of books as canon explaining that this radical new revelation uh, that comes through Jesus Christ. And we gave other reasons as well as why just being illiterate or being oral doesn't mean you exclude written texts. Um, we also looked at other men, uh, suspicious texts by writers in the early church that seemed to indicate that their emphasis was orally and not on textuality. We examined uh, Papias and Paul. Uh, they seemed to promote this idea in a few of their, their isolated quotes that uh, the idea of orality was important to them. And we saw in a couple lessons that that really isn't the case. Papias, all he was doing was simply collecting the eyewitness accounts of Jesus before that generation of men who sat under Christ uh, passed away. He speaks about the living and active voice that he's trying to record. And what he means by that is not an oral tradition, but he means that the words that were spoken, he, he, what he wanted to do basically was the people that had heard Christ were dying. And he wanted to talk to them to collect as many eyewitness accounts as he could. But what did he want to do with those accounts? He wanted to write them down. So that, that kind of excludes the idea of him being against text because he wanted to take this oral tradition and preserve it in a text for future generations. And then we looked at Paul's statement in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, about the, the law being written on the hearts of the people of God and uh, that being used by some secular scholars to show that, well, what Paul was speaking of here was a written, an oral tradition as opposed to a written tradition. And the fact what Paul's speaking about there is simply the new covenant. He's not comparing two modes of revelation, oral and a textual. He's comparing two covenants, a, 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 a written covenant that is uh, passing away, that is temporary and limited versus a, a living covenant, the new covenant, which is the spirit-empowered covenant, not two forms of revelation. Um, last time we were here, wasn't last week, we, we skipped a week from our, our combined class. Uh, we looked, what the question of all, that's often marshaled is the idea that, well, since the early church thought that Christ's return was imminent, that he's going to return at any moment, and there's explicit statements that Christ makes in, in certain gospels where he says that, um, you know, this generation will not pass until these things 
take place. And what he's clearly talking about there is his coming to set up his kingdom, to establish his kingdom. So he's talking about all these great events coming, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, of him uh, appearing in the clouds in glory uh, to set up his kingdom, and all, the, all these great events occurring, and that you, some people standing here today, will not die until you see these things take place. So what a lot of scholars do is they read that and say, well, what Christ is referring to here is his coming to set up his king, permanent kingdom and that it's going to happen within the lifetime of some of these people. And that certainly appears to be what Christ is saying. But we also looked at the fact that when, when prophecies are given in the Old Testament, uh, often they're, they're in given in these large lumps of information, of, of acts that are going to happen. And it appears when you hear them for the first time that they're all happening at the same time, that all these things are going to happen at one time, uh, in, in one moment, in one occurrence. But often as they start to, to unfold, we learn that no, it's not intended to be one event but a series of events that are going to happen one after another. Sometimes uh, those events are being separated by thousands of years. And we looked at the example of uh, approaching a mountain range. You get up to the mountain, you see all, all these mountains looming in the background from 100 miles away, like you're approaching the Rocky Mountains. And it looks like they're just one big mountain. And then you get closer. And you notice that no, these two mountains here are separate. You can see there's a distance between them. And you still think that they're rather close. But then as you get closer and closer, you can see that those mountains are spread out further and further. Sometimes they can be miles apart. Well, prophecy is the same way. When it occurs, when it's given, often it looks like it's one big thing happening. And then as we get closer, as those events begin to unfold, we see no, there's time between those things. And what's the perfect example of this that we have in Scripture that we've already lived through? Or that the church has. Pardon? Yeah, exactly. The, the, uh, the Old Testament saints saw Christ coming, uh, doing his salvific work, and restoring his kingdom at the same time. And so when he came and, and they started talking, he started talking about, um, you know, dying and then being resurrected. You know, they were puzzled. Well, what are you talking about? You're going to die? How, you can't die. You're here to save us. You're here to deliver Israel over from her enemies and, and set up your eternal kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2, where all the nations uh, come to Jerusalem uh, to worship and honor the Lord and, and receive from his law. And how are you going to die? How's that going to work? And even when after Christ was, was raised again and he's getting ready to go up into heaven and he's telling them, I'm going to go up to heaven, I'm going to stay there for a while. And what's Peter's question? Well, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And that, that we often think, well, Peter was just a, a lug and didn't know what he was doing. But that was a legitimate question based from their perspective of seeing these two things happening at the same time. So it was natural for Peter to say, well, you're, you're going away. Well, Why? And when are you going to set up the kingdom like you promised to do? Well, Peter hadn't quite seen that distance yet uh, like we see it right now. So these things are often given uh, with this, this distance in mind. And we saw also, we looked at many other examples of this in Isaiah 60, uh, 40 through 66, uh, which is all often called by scholars the second exodus, because there, there's promises given to Israel uh, over and over again as they're getting ready to go into exile. God is whispering in their ears in some sense, you're going to come back. You're going to come back. I'm not finished with you. 
things are going to happen. Promises are still going to be kept. And some of these promises are just the most amazing promises, again, made uh, being fulfilled when they return back into the land after their exile. Uh, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a destruction of all of Israel's enemies. Uh, the knowledge and salvation of the Lord will, will reach the very ends of the earth. Uh, Israel is to be exalted above the nations. She's to be vindicated among all the nations. Uh, the spirit is poured out in a mighty way. Uh, figuratively, it says deserts are going to come to life. There's going to be rivers running through the wilderness, bringing life to that wilderness. Uh, God's people are given a new heart uh, to obey and follow the Lord, thus uh, preventing another exile. And so the Jews come back into the land and they build the second temple. And what happens? Well, none of these promises take place at least not at that time. So what does Israel say? Well, we're just going to give up that the Lord is, is deceiving us? No, they understood that it's going to happen, but not in the way that we thought it would. All these promises were made in one big lump to us. We've seen some of them happen. That's not a reason to give up hope that they're never going to happen, but it's a reason for us to hope that what has begun will ultimately be completed. And that, that's what the apostles tell us about the coming of Christ. That this is a promise, this is a seal, this is a guarantee that something else is going to happen, something greater is going to happen. So that's how they view these unfulfilled prophecies, not as a let's just give up, say the Lord's lying to us or deceiving us. No, the, the fact that some of them actually were fulfilled. Uh, it may be disappointing that not all of them were, but the things that were fulfilled are, are a token or a seal or a sign to us that yes, greater things will happen. So when the people are calling to mind uh, the words of Christ when Jerusalem is being destroyed, as Christ prophesied in many of these prophecies. And what did they think? Well, it, it's happening. But then after it's destroyed, it doesn't happen the way Christ said. Does that mean they give up? No, okay, we saw this. He did say Jerusalem would be destroyed. We see that it is destroyed. Now that simply means it's more of a, uh, encourages all the more to trust that he will ultimately come back and return. A, a professor of mine one time in explaining these things at seminary said that it's kind of like a, a, a waiting for prophecy to be fulfilled. It's like looking at a stage and, and you know how it's going to end. And you're watching this stage, and every once in a while, you see players come out and start to perform little, little acts, little roles. And then you think, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then everybody disappears, and it goes back to normal. And you think, okay, well, didn't happen this time. They come out again, and people say, oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to get ready. The Lord is going to return, and then the curtain goes down again. And this happens all through history. Think of the, think of the Christians in World War II. When all these, these massive nations uh, are coming together for war and, and Christ is promising, you know, these massive wars are going to take place. Uh, people are going to flee their homes, uh, flee the, their lands where they're living. Um, and, and this great uproar and upheaval in society that's going to occur before Christ returns. What were they thinking? I mean, Hitler's the perfect antichrist. I mean, you can't get any better than that, right? And, uh, but yet, it's over. It happens. Uh, there's great suffering, but then we know, okay, it's just a sign that what's going to really take place is going to take place someday. And it's going to be far worse than anything we ever imagined it would be. So it, it heightens our sense uh, of how quickly things can change and how bad things can be uh, and how quickly they can come back to normal. But also it reminds us how quickly the Lord can return at these events that he promised that would take place before his return can come up out of nowhere 
and progress rather rapidly for his ultimate return. So those are some things we looked at to explain this idea of, well, they all believed that Jesus was going to come back in her lifetime, so why bother going through the trouble of making a canon? Just wait for him to come back and rely on the words that he gave us. A quote that I read last time I think kind of sums it up nicely. Uh, the people of God had often seen from the Old Testament prophecies uh, that were partially fulfilled. They realized, uh, let me back up here. The people of God had often seen from the Old Testament that prophecies were partially realized, and hence they anticipated the complete fulfillment in the future. Such a perspective helps explain why the church was neither scandalized nor plunged into a crisis of confidence by the fact that Jesus did not come back in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, the judgment of Jerusalem also functioned as a pattern for the future judgment still to come. So there was no panic. Uh, there was no uh, rejecting of the Gospels. And you always think, why would they have put that there if it was so blatantly wrong? Because if you don't understand the mindset of the, the, the first century church and its Jewish mindset about prophecy, you think, well, why did they put that in there? And I, I have debates on, online with uh, these atheist uh, webs, uh, Facebook pages where they always bring up these passages. And I said, do you really think they were that stupid that they would put something in there that a clear, unfulfilled prophecy, knowing what the Old Testament says about false prophets, that Jesus could have immediately be dismissed as a false prophet, they would have put that in every single gospel, sometime in two places? Were they really that dumb? And the problem is they just don't understand uh, the Old Testament perspective. They've got their, their current naturalistic mindset that they're reading into the scriptures. Um, another thing that indicates that this idea is false is that Jesus often, uh, Jesus often teaches uh, that there will be a delay in his coming. And he preaches to the people how to prepare and how to be ready for that delay. Uh, the gospel, he says, is to be preached to all nations before his return. Uh, the wicked slaves uh, fall prey to sin when they begin to think that their, their master is delayed uh, when he doesn't immediately return. This is the, the parables in Matthew 14 and Luke 12, where the master goes away and uh, they're not sure how long he's gone for. After a couple weeks, a couple months, they realize, well, he's not coming back, so let's go ahead and just take over this place and run it the way we think it should be. Uh, what, how would the church have read that? That Christ's coming back tomorrow? Could be, but he could be coming back years from now. We need to be faithful during this time while he is gone. Uh, the parable of the virgin indica virgins indicate that there will be some delay before the bridegroom returns. And during that time, no matter how long it is, we are to be ready and, and ready for his return. Uh, the Lord portrays himself as a master uh, returning from a long journey in Matthew 25. Uh, the coming of the Son of Man is compared to the days of Noah. Uh, life will be proceeding pretty much in a normal fashion, and he returns, and no one is really able to gauge when that judgment is going to come. So there's plenty of teaching uh, by Christ that there would be a delay in his coming and how to people are to prepare and live during that uh, delay. And another thing, too, that, that's interesting is that, this will be my final point here before we move on. I think everything I did before was review, but this is, a, um, this is sort of an addition to this. Um, does the fact that they were a, a community, what we call an apocalyptic community, waiting for the immediate return of Christ and expecting it to come at any time, uh, does that mean that they would have simply been indifferent to texts? Uh, to recording, uh, to writing documents and collecting documents and preserving them. And uh, 
the question, do we have any other examples of communities like this in the first century or around that time that were apocalyptic that did put a great emphasis on text? Anybody know of one that is out there? You know who were the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Qumran community lived uh, about 100, 150 years before the coming of Christ. And uh, they expected this imminent return of Christ. It's language, it's almost fanatical in their belief that Christ will be coming back or the Messiah will be coming back immediately. And they lived their life expecting that to happen so much so that they removed themselves uh, from society to live by themselves and prepare for his coming in, in their own little community. And yet they, they were Thousands of texts these people produced. In fact, the whole uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are collections from this community that they preserved and, and stuck in caves. And, and uh, there's literally thousands of these documents. If you study them, uh, their reference is, if you look at the, how they reference them, there's like a C and a number and then a bunch of other numbers. The, the C there is for the cave that they were found. And these things were spread out through the desert in these different caves. And they were put in pots. And other reference could refer to the pot that they were stored in. And there could be dozens of documents in these pots. So that's how they catalog them, in the, the cave they were found in, the pot that was in that cave, and then the document in that pot. So uh, they had a big emphasis on preserving text, writing things down and preserving them. And one man says this, in many ways, the eschatology of the Qumran community was similar to that of the early Christianity, particularly in the concept of the last days as including the present as well as future events. Even though they believed God's redemption was near, the Qumran community continued to concern themselves with everyday activities. They saw no contradiction between these things. And one of the major activities of the community was the production of religious texts. Not only were many of their writings uh, committed to careful exegetical interaction with Old Testament texts, but they also composed new treatises, new treatises, which no doubt would have had a quasi-scriptural status. As noted above, the early Christian communities performed the same two functions. They interacted with the text of the Old Testament and also produced new authoritative texts. Thus, it appears that eschatological communities that produced scriptural texts were not an unusual occurrence in the first century. So his point here is that if you say that the, the first century Christianity, because they had this apocalyptic sense of Christ returning any minute now, uh, what they call eschatological communities, that because of that, they would have not preserved text or been interested in text, goes completely against the historical evidence that we find, where we have a community that does do that in, in a major, major way, even more so uh, than the writers of the New Testament did. So th those two things are, are not uh, incompatible. Any questions about that before we move on? Okay, so we're going to leave this subject and go into the, the question of when the apostles wrote, what did they think about their writings? How did they, what did they say about them? How did they expect them to be received? Were they expected to be received as just sort of uh, casual, occasional letters uh, that addressed immediate problems in the church? Or were their letters, in their own words, uh, given authority uh, that the apostles, apostles never intended them to have. So were they authoritative in their own mind, or were they simply written as general letters uh, to help occasional problems? Uh, and later the church took those documents and made them authoritative. So was the authority understood and promoted by those who wrote the books? Um, here's what, what some men say. Uh, the authors of the New Testament books did not know that they were writing scripture. 
letters to help other churches. Didn't see them as scriptures. Uh, another writer says, the gospels were not written as canonical books, which were intended to be a norm as a new scripture to claim authority. Now, there, there's some truth to these ideas. Uh, their writings did have an occasional aspect to them. When Paul wrote letter of Galatians, uh, he didn't necessarily start out saying, okay, I'm going to write a book, and this book is ultimately going to be a part of the canon. Uh, he saw a problem in a church. Uh, he wrote to address it. But what type of authority did he have in addressing that problem? Was it just, hey, here's some good advice? Or did he speak the very words of God himself? Did it have the authority uh, of God himself when he wrote to the Thessalonians uh, to encourage them and give them direction? Uh, what was the nature of his authority? Was it the words of Christ? Did it have that same authority? Or was it just a, a bunch of good advice, good practical advice, like a, a count, sitting down with Dan uh, for counseling or, or Russ soon to be one of these days. Uh, when he talks to you, is he, is he speaking in the name of Christ? Are his words to be taken as the words of Christ? Or are they counsel uh, filled with, with biblical ideas and biblical concepts that is going to be helpful for you to maintain? Because uh, the intrinsic scholars think that, well, it's just advice, good, sound wisdom. Where we, the intrinsic, we believe that, no, it was, it was the authority of God in their very words. Well, what did the apostles think? How did they write? And we'll see, they wrote with the authority of God. Um, again, Paul says, uh, one man says this, uh, so far in my composition of New Testament canon, uh, let's see, right, let me skip that, however. So again, uh, they were occasional letters written to deal with occasional problems, but they wrote with authority uh, that would have the very authority of God or Christ himself. So the thesis here is the New Testament authors wrote with an awareness that their writings passed down an apostolic tradition, and therefore they carried supreme authority in the life of the church. Uh, the authors of the New Testament were conscious of a unique vocation to write, this is what uh, uh, N.T. Wright says, I, lo I love this phrase here. Uh, the New Testament writers were conscious of a unique vocation to write Jesus-shaped, spirit-led, church-shaping books as part of that, their strange first-generation call. What a way to describe uh, the writings of the apostles. Uh, Jesus-shaped, spirit-led, church-shaping books. Beautiful description. They, they were had Jesus in mind, they were led by the Spirit in their writing, and they were designed to shape churches, to, to form churches into what God wanted them to be. Whether or not they used the term scripture to describe their writings uh, is not necessarily important. I'm sure Paul would not have said this is scripture when he wrote Galatians, but eventually the church recognized it as such. And even within uh, the New Testament, we see people recognizing Paul's writings as scripture. Peter uh, calls Paul's writing scripture. You are to listen to it and obey it as scripture, even though it's difficult to understand. understand. But again, it doesn't really matter whether or not they call this scripture. The question is, what authority did they possess, did they claim when writing the book? Uh, first example is uh, Galatians. Let me, I'll go ahead and open up my Bible. Don't feel like you need to. I just want to have the text before me as I'm explaining it. Galatians 1.
Okay, Paul is writing the book of Galatians, I'm, I'm sure we know, to, to confront Peter and his distortion of the gospel, his requiring of uh, circumcision for inclusion into the kingdom of God, becoming a Jew first before you can become a Christian. And, and Paul sees that as heresy, and he's writing, again, to another apostle. Uh, a person equal to him in authority and power to, to bring this man back to the truth of God after he had strayed. So when Paul starts the book, he's going to start with the authority that he possesses in writing his book. And he says this, he starts this way, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So he starts out by laying down the source of his apostleship, that he received this not from men, but he received it directly through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, right off the bat, look, this is who I am, and this is who I've received it from. Now, anybody who understood what apostle meant and what it meant to directly receive authority from Christ, their ears would have perked up to listen. Okay, what does this guy have to say? This is how he starts off his letter. So it would have been a, a, a cause for them to listen and pay careful attention to the words that follow. He also claims that the gospel he preached uh, was not of human intervention either, but he received it from, as a revelation from Jesus Christ. Rev, uh, Galatians 1, uh, 12 through 13 says, For I did not receive it from any man, it here is the gospel. He speaks about that in verse 11. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing a Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the tradition of the fathers. Then he talks about how Christ intervened and, and revealed the truth to him. So the gospel that he preaches here um, is not a gospel that he's made up. It's not even a gospel that somebody else taught him. It's a gospel that he was taught directly from Jesus Christ himself, a revelation from Christ. Uh, Paul then pronounces judgment uh, for the turning away from the gospel that they once preached, and he continued to preach faithfully, Galatians 1, uh, 6 through 9. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be accursed. So in other words, I've received this apostolic calling from Christ. I've received this message of the gospel from him. And anybody who does not listen to this gospel, who turns away from it, is to be anathema. And the word anathema there bears all the idea of being cursed of God, being cast out of the presence of God into eternity forever and ever. That's the force of this idea of um, being apostatized or being condemned or being a, a cursed. Now, again, whether the, Paul would have called the book of Galatians scripture, he probably wouldn't have. But as we can see, he's writing this letter with the authority of God, and it's to be taken as, in a very real sense, the words of God himself as he defends this gospel, which God has given him. God has directly spoken to him, and he's writing as an apostle who received that gift directly from God himself. Uh, the next passage, and there's a couple of them in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, 
in 2 Thessalonians, some of the strongest statements that Paul makes about uh, the, the reason behind his writing and the authority of his writing can be found in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. And these are some of Paul's earliest epistles. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, most scholars think, is Paul's very first epistle. Now, Paul, remember, keep in mind the sort of the history here that, that Paul has uh, visited the Thessalonian church, uh, started the church there. Uh, there was a great deal of persecution that occurred. Paul was there for a very, very short time. Uh, and then Paul had to leave the church in order for the church to survive. There was a deal worked out where they said, okay, we'll, we'll leave you guys alone if you just get rid of Paul. And so Paul left, uh, went to Ephesus, waited there, uh, tried to get information about the church, uh, didn't receive anything, uh, prayed diligently for them. Then he sent Timothy, after he could wait no longer, to get news of the church, thinking that the church may not have even survived, to leave a, a new church like that un under the, uh, the withering persecution of both pagan and Jewish uh, people was a horrible thing to think of. Uh, but in Paul's mind, it may have simply failed. The, the, Satan may have overcome it, and the church didn't persevere. So he sends Timothy to find out about the church. Timothy returns and reports that the church is thriving. Not only is it alive, but it's functioning and it is surviving. I think he says it's growing uh, in love and knowledge uh, in, in, in the spirit. So uh, Paul received this news and then writes the first epistle of Thessalonians to them. And again, he's just elated to find out that they are actually surviving and thriving. And while he was there for that very short period of time, uh, it seems that Paul has taught a lot of information to them. He's revealed a lot of things to them. In fact, so much so that he, he calls it the tradition uh, that you have received from us, the oral tradition that I gave you while I was there. So in first. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says this. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, that at, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, be, become imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So his point here is that when we came to you, uh, you received our word. And how did you receive it? Well, you received it as the word of God. Now, was Paul simply reading the Old Testament to them, which was the word of God at that time? Or did they hear his voice, they understand his role as an apostle, understand his authority, and say, what Paul is speaking to us is indeed the words of God. It is the word as if God is speaking to us himself. He's speaking through this apostle. Uh, this idea of received, is the Greek word here, is commonly used to denote uh, the reception of apostolic tradition. Now, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago when, as Protestants, especially Baptists, when we hear uh, tradition, uh, it kind of, our, our little hairs in the back of our neck go up and our little spider senses kind of go up. Well, tradition, what do you mean tradition? What Paul's referring to here is simply this. The apostles went to different places to teach, and they would bring whatever scripture they had. Uh, they would preach to them, but when they left, what they left there was a tradition, a tradition of spoken words that that church could hold on to and cling to as the very words of Christ. So Paul's saying here, I came to you, and I spoke these words to you, and you received them, and the reception was a reception of a tradition, of a set of teachings that we left you that have the authority of God himself. And what happened as, we looked at this a couple times, as 
the church grew and as time went on and the apostles started fading from the scene and scriptures became more formulated and, and, and spread abroad, then this tradition began to fade and they put more confidence and trust in the Bible. So as the apostles died, as those men who first received that tradition, as they died, more trust was given to the scripture and ultimately this tradition faded away and the scriptures came into to have a more prominent place. And one of the differences between us and the Catholics is the Catholics think that that tradition is still available to them and that they have all that, all the things about the, the priests and their, their robes, the bishops, the cardinals, all the rituals, uh, the mass, Mary, all that they believe is contained in, in this tradition. And then we have the scriptures to go along with it as well, where we believe, no, that tradition was given. And it was a God-inspired tradition in the same way that scripture is God-inspired. But as time went on, that tradition faded and the scriptures came to have a prominence. Uh, again, other places where this idea of the apostolic tradition is received. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And so what Paul's saying here is when he gave them uh, the Lord's Supper, he didn't give them a, a book that said, here, uh, practice this. But he gave them a tradition. He received it from God, and now they are receiving this tradition from him, and therefore take what I gave you, what you received from me, this tradition, and do these things. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand by, which you are saved, by which you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for the sins according to the scriptures. So again, uh, he didn't leave them a bunch of books. He left them an oral tradition. He preached to them. And they are to recall what he preached to them and apply that and live that out in their lives. Again, for I handed down to you as a first importance. So this was the most important thing I did to you, did for you, was give you this tradition that I actually received myself. So he's transferring it from what he received to them. Uh, Galatians 1.9, we have said before, even now again, uh, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. How is this gospel received? By standing up and preaching and teaching that very gospel. Uh, the phrase word of God here is, is used by Paul to refer to authoritative divine teaching and instruction. First uh, Corinthians 14.36, he says, Or was it from you that the word of God first went out, or has it come to you only? Uh, Colossians 1.25, I was made a minister of this church according to the commission from God granted to me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.9, for which I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not in prison. So this idea of, of him, them having the word of God, him being given the word of God in his tradition, means that, that they had words that had the very authority of God himself. That is what Paul imparted to the Thessalonians.
Now, some people say, well, uh, Paul's teaching had divine authority when he was there teaching, but do his letters carry that same authority? We're talking about letters here. We're talking about epistles, books, writings. Uh, do his writings have that same authority as his preaching had? Remember, the, the tradition was given through preaching of the word. Well, some will say, well, the, the preaching had authority, certainly, but the writing didn't have that authority. So is there a, a, a parallel between the authority of his teaching and the authority of his writings? And it certainly seems that there was. Uh, first of all, uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, 2 through 8 says, For you know what instructions we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God for your sanctification, that as you abstain from sexual immorality, that you teach that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one violate the rights and take advantage of his brother or sister in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all, in all these things, just as we also told you previously and solemnly warned you, for God is not called us to impurity but sanctification. Therefore, he who rejects this is not rejecting men, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. Paul here states that he is simply reiterating the apostolic, apostolic teaching about personal holiness that he taught while present with them. This teaching came through the Lord Jesus and should be regarded as as God's will for them. Now, how is Paul presenting this to them? Well, he's writing it to them. So he told them while he was there, and now he's writing the same thing to them, telling them that they have to obey this. If they reject this teaching, they disregard not men, but God himself. Thus, Paul uh, re rejects the idea that the teaching of Paul has some separate authority than the writing of Paul. So he says it to them, and he reminds them of he said it to them, that he said it to them in actual writing. Uh, Paul also, elsewhere, uh, acknowledged that the mode of delivery of the message uh, is not important, that, that there's no difference between the authority in, in the teaching and the actual writing. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.5, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to, to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. It's probably the most significant passage here. He says, look, uh, listen to us. Listen to what we tell you, whether it's in a letter or whether it was spoken. So no difference in Paul's mind between the tradition given orally and the traditions written in the word. In other places, he indicates that his, his letters are more powerful than his presence. Uh, first, uh, second Corinthians, Second Corinthians 10, 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So the letters are powerful. They're, they're moving. Uh, they're strong. Uh, they're convicting. But his presence is just this weak, unimpressive little, little guy trying to teach us with a squeaky voice. Uh, Paul ends the letter exhorting the church uh, with an oath before the Lord to make sure this letter is read publicly to the church. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 5.27, I put you under oath by the Lord to have this letter read in, to all the brother, brothers and sisters. So this letter was to be read to people. Uh, why is that important? Well, what was done in churches in uh, Jesus' day or in the synagogues? What did they read? Did they read uh, personal letters uh, from one pastor to another? No, they read what they considered to be scripture. They, they took the roll, unrolled it, read the words, and then expounded upon the words. Paul is saying, do the same thing with this letter as you did with your Old Testament text. Take it and read it before the church so that the whole church hears this letter. Again, implying there, again, that it has the same authority as the Old Testament text. 
And we see this in uh, Luke 4, uh, Jesus doing this in Luke 4, 16 and 17. Uh, it's done in Acts 13, 15 and Acts 15, 21, where uh, they go to the synagogue and, and read a text from the Old Testament scripture. Uh, another one is 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 38, probably the most explicit uh, statement of Paul's authority. His writing are actually declared to be the commandments of the Lord. Let me go ahead and read it for us. Usually I include the, the text in my notes, but I didn't do that this time. So. First Corinthians 14, Thirty-seven and thirty-eight. He says this: If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that these things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forget speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So, the, the point here is that he's basically declaring that his writings are what. They are the command of the Lord. They're God commanding him. God, it's as if God himself were here commanding these things to you. Uh, the phrase is commonly used throughout the Old Testament as a reference either to the uh, command that directly come from God himself or commands that are given to Moses or other prophets that they are speaking in God's place. Uh, there are dozens of examples of this uh, in the, the Pentateuch. Uh, Exodus 4.13, 5.17, 27.34, Numbers 15.39, Deuteronomy 4.2 are, are just a small number of examples where the commands of God are, are being given to Moses and Moses speaking to the people saying that I am giving you the commands of God himself. Paul is doing the same thing. This letter I'm writing to you are God's very own commands. Not the words of men, but the words of God's commands. Uh, he used this phrase previously in 1 Corinthians 7.19 to refer to authoritative instruction from God himself. So Paul is so confident of his own authority uh, that he declares anyone who does not recognize his authority as unrecognized. Uh, this pronouncement is sort of a, a prophetic sentence of judgment on those who fail to heed his letters. The language is consistent uh, with his role as a minister of the new covenant, which God has made them uh, made him adequate for. So uh, in Paul's mind, his writings, at least in this book here, 1 Corinthians, are the very commands of God given to this church. So what authority would you say Paul's writings had in his own mind? Well, they're, they're very authority of God himself, as if God were speaking, commanding the church with his own voice. You're quiet. Any questions or comments? Let's see how much time we have. Uh, we're out of time. I'm sorry. I'm a minute over. We're going to quit here and then uh, move on next. We'll probably, uh, I, got, I have a couple more places, but I think I've convinced you that, that this is the case. And there's also evidence uh, that the Gospels were the same way, the way the Gospels were written. Uh, they have the same authority, even though they're anonymous and it's not as direct as Paul saying these are the commandments of God. We see it in, in the other non-Pauline epistles and Revelation. Um, I think I've convinced you that, that the writers of the apostles, the apostles writing the New Testament, particularly Paul, saw himself as writing with the authority of God, whether it was uh, seen to him as scripture, as a book that was going to be added to the canon, uh, probably not. But it had the authority as if it could be added to the canon itself. So any questions or comments, feel free to uh, come up and ask. But thanks for your attention and your time.